I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Hopefully everybody had a great weekend. Okay, so busy pod. I got a lot to get into. I have four big takes that I want to get to. Three are NFL related, two of course Patriots related, and then one Belichick related. And then I do have one thought on the Bruins. So the first thing you'll hear is my Belichick take. That's from our FanDuel TV show. You'll hear that next. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike. So the Mayo era is underway for the Patriots. And it felt like the Bill Belichick era was about to start for the Falcons, but maybe we jumped a little bit too soon on that one because we found out on Thursday that Bill Belichick flew in Arthur Blank's private jet to interview again with the the Atlanta Falcons. And at that particular point in time, I don't know about you, but I sure felt like, okay, this is a done deal. It was being proposed as Bill's second interview, but I thought at the time this was more like, hey, Bill Belichick is interviewing the Falcons, not the other way around, right? This is the greatest coach in the history of the league. He's interviewing them. They're not interviewing him. If he wants this job, this is his. So, and I also felt at the beginning of the process, we got the reporting that Atlanta, their number one target was Bill Belichick. And remember, it had been all over the place that the Falcons really wanted Bill Belichick. And from my perspective, I never thought it was the greatest fit. But after you go through the jobs, and I'll get to that in a second here, you felt like, okay, maybe he ends up in Atlanta. And after he has that second interview, you feel like, okay, this is a done deal. But then we find out on Sunday, there's a lot more to this Falcon situation. Harbaugh is going to have a second interview with them. Mike Vrabel is going to be interviewing with the Falcons. Joe Brady is going to, and that's not a big deal. I mean, he's the offensive coordinator for the Bills. I don't see that one as like a threat to Belichick. Brian Callahan, the offensive coordinator for the Bengals. You have Bobby Slowick, the offensive coordinator for the Texans. So Adam Schefter reports that the search is, quote, a wide net in terms of the job that Atlanta has right now. So 
If you're the Falcons and you can talk to Jim Harbaugh and Mike Vrabel, you do it, right? Jim Harbaugh went to the conference title game with the San Francisco 49ers, what, three straight years, and he made it to a Super Bowl. He got Alex Smith to play at a high level before then they develop Colin Kaepernick, and he becomes a stud for a couple of years. Remember, Alex Smith was considered to be an afterthought, a bust with the number one overall pick, and Harbaugh got his career on track. So most recently, of course, we all know, three straight trips to the college football playoff, and he just won the national championship, right? So if I'm making a coaching decision at this point in time, and Harbaugh wants to be my head coach, I'm sorry, I would go with Harbaugh over Bill. He's 60 years old, Bill's 71, Belichick's coming off two horrible seasons, and Jim Harbaugh's coming off a national championship. And I get it, you could say, hey, there's issues there in terms of violating rules. Okay, yeah, but it's college football. It's not like he's going to have these issues in the NFL. I don't think he's going to have another situation that he had this past season at Michigan. He's a great coach, despite having a track record with some issues, right? So anyway, if I was Atlanta, Harbaugh's there, I would hire Harbaugh, but it doesn't feel like that's totally going to be the case, right? The question is, does Harbaugh really want that gig? Now, Harbaugh to the Chargers has always made the most sense, right? Gets back to California, where, of course, he coached at San Diego, he coached at Stanford, he coached the San Francisco 49ers, right? So outside of Michigan, he's spent most of his coaching career in the state of California. And you also have a really talented quarterback in Justin Herbert, and he can be the final piece, Can Harbaugh, to sort of save that organization that's been, quite frankly, run very poorly. And that sounds a lot like San Francisco before he got to San Francisco. So Harbaugh wins that battle with Bill if he wants to go to Atlanta, but it feels like the Chargers have always made more sense for Harbaugh. But now Harbaugh is at least part of the conversation if he's having another interview. And then the other guy there is Mike Vrabel. He's just 48. And we know the Chargers have interest in Vrabel. The Seahawks have interest in Vrabel. And look, these other guys, Callahan, Slowick, I just can't see that for Atlanta because, and look, they may turn out to be great coaches, especially Bobby Slowick. I love that guy from the Houston Texans. But the point with that is, it feels like what Atlanta wants is an experienced coach. That's why I sort of rule those guys out. But to me, the one thing I'll say is this. If you look at the other openings right now, the commanders I have first, like if you're ranking the best jobs, because you have a new ownership group that is really motivated and you get rid of the worst owner in the NFL, you have the number two overall pick. So you're going to have your choice, whether you like Drake May or Jaden Daniels. And the coach going there is going to have a long rope because they know they're in a rebuild, right? They've identified that. They bring in Adam Peters, who was second in command over there in San Francisco. So you have a high level of executive hire already, too. They're into analytics over there. So that's a really good job. Number two, I would have the Chargers. Then I would have Atlanta. And the reason I put the Chargers over Atlanta is because they have Herbert, right? Then you have Seattle, I would put after that. Then Tennessee and Carolina. So here's the problem that Bill has that Harbaugh and Mike Vrabel don't. Those guys have other options, right? And because of what Bill is looking for and what teams are looking for, and because the Cowboys stuck with McCarthy and because the Eagles appear that, hey, we're just going to switch up our coaching staff and stick with Sirianni, Atlanta is the only real job that links up for Belichick because it feels like the Chargers are more intrigued with Harbaugh than Belichick, right? Belichick wanted an underachieving but talented team. And you think about this, the only two teams that 
fit that are the Chargers and the Falcons because those other teams are not firing their coaches. Carolina's a dumpster fire that drafted the wrong quarterback. Bill's not going there. Tennessee is now going through a rebuild. Seattle just got rid of its older coach. So Belichick's not going there. So the Vrabel-Harbaugh wrinkle in this makes this whole situation just a little bit cloudier for Bill Belichick. So if you're in the Belichick camp, you have to be hoping that Vrabel gets the commander's job and Harbaugh takes the Chargers job because that gives you the path to Atlanta. Now, Washington is sort of a wild card in all this, right? I mentioned Vrabel, the possibility of him going to the commanders and Adam Peters was working with the Patriots when Vrabel was a player. So there is a connection there. But they're into analytics, as I mentioned. They may want to go with a young offensive mind to mold their young quarterback, whoever they take at number two. And you also think about it from Peter's perspective. He comes from San Francisco, where all these great offensive guys come from, right? Kyle Shanahan's coaching tree, Mike McDaniel with the Miami Dolphins. You think about it, they may look at it and say, hey, maybe we want an offensive guy, not Mike Rabel, a defensive guy. So that's what Washington is one to watch out for here, right? So I've always felt... Atlanta for Belichick was sort of boring. But now I'm anxious because I just want Bill to get a head coaching job, but it really feels like this is the only one for Belichick, unless something wild happens with the Chargers and Harbaugh. So this is the question that I would ask. Bill clearly wants to get right back into this thing, and he's motivated to do so. But could a lack of patience actually hurt Bill Belichick here? And this is what I mean by that. So we've talked about the Belichick without Tom Brady narrative, where I felt like for a while it was kind of stupid. But now, after this track record of the last four seasons, it is something that Bill, when he coaches, wherever he coaches again, he's going to have to prove it wrong. Because we know the record in Cleveland was not good. It was 36-44. and 44. We know that Bill's coming off a 4-13 and 13 season, the worst of his time here with the Patriots, and that was after an 8-9 and nine season. So this Atlanta thing on paper, it looks good, right? Because it's a winnable division, right? And that's certainly the case. And I look at around the league, like I, like I said, I would have moved on from Mike McCarthy and Nick Sirianni. And if both those teams underachieve again, here's the thing. Like, the Atlanta situation looks good now, but what if next offseason, Mike McCarthy gets fired? Which is incredibly possible because... In all likelihood, the Cowboys are going to choke again. What if Sirianni and the Eagles underachieve? Those jobs could come open, right? But I threw out this possibility last week on the pod that, okay, the quarterback that makes the most sense and that Belichick could win with in Atlanta and is actually realistic to get is Kirk Cousins because he's a free agent. But even that's not a lock, right? Because Cousins may just go back to Minnesota or he may go elsewhere, right? And I know like his wife's from Georgia. We got that. We talked about that last week in the pod as well. So maybe that's a connection, but there's no guarantee he's going to go there. And also you look at the fact that, so if it's not Cousins who can get you to the playoffs, the eighth pick, you don't really have a good situation there in terms of getting the quarterback. So when you look at it from that perspective, it just feels like if you go there, if you're Bill Belichick, you go to Atlanta and you have a few seasons where you're under 500, the you cannot win without Tom narrative gets louder and louder. And with Brady, the difference here is he was the final piece to the puzzle in Tampa. Obviously the most important piece, but that team had so much talent. You had a great slot receiver in Chris Godwin. You had Mike Evans, who has been one of the best receivers in the NFL for now a decade. And then he brought his buddy Gronk out of retirement with him. The defense was already stacked. We're talking about 
Levante David, Devin White, you had Vita Vea. So, and you look at that group in Tampa, the previous season, Jameis Winston, yes, he threw the 30 interceptions, but he also threw 30 touchdowns. Like they had weapons and they had a lot to work with there. So even though Tom, we all know that he wanted to go to San Francisco and play for his childhood team, the reality for Tom is he actually chose really well. Now, San Francisco, it would have been great there. And remember famously, they went back and they watched all the film and they decided that Jimmy Garoppolo was a better option than Tom Brady, which is just thinking back how ridiculous that sounds. But that was their logic because, of, co- of course, Tom's numbers were not particularly good in the 2019 season when he didn't have the weapons and he didn't have the offensive line protection. Remember, that was a tough season for the Patriots. But anyway, just getting back to my point here is I understand the urgency with Belichick that he's so motivated. He wants to prove Kraft wrong. He wants to get back into it right now. But I just don't see like this clear path with Atlanta. And I do wonder, sometimes it feels like, hey, maybe if you take a step back and you wait a year, these other job opportunities open up for you. Now, I was under the impression late last week that, hey, this is just going to be Bill's job and he's going to be able to go to Atlanta and be the head coach. But now that there's just a little bit more competition for this, it does make it a little bit more difficult. And I really do start to think to myself, hey, I really don't want to see Bill go somewhere else and stink, right? Because we saw him over the past couple of years. Now it's hurt Bill more than anything else. We've been over it time and time again, has been the actual roster construction, not the coaching. Belichick can still coach. But if he goes to this place and they don't get the quarterback situation right, well, he's with the Patriots again, right? With a slightly better roster. Like, I know Atlanta has weapons and all that, but it would feel like Bill's coaching the Patriots again if he doesn't have a legitimate quarterback. So right now, it's going to be fascinating to see how this thing sort of turns out. But I'm now starting to get a little bit worried about the Belichick to Atlanta situation. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So some fascinating stuff in Mike Reese's Sunday column about the Patriots, of course, and it's always a must read for Patriots fans. So I really have to question this where are the Patriots really considering bringing back Mac? It's really insightful stuff for Mike Reese, where Mike Reese at a Sunday column, he writes that Mayo and Mac, he or I should say he has Mayo and Mac as his first item, like he numbers all the items he has. Number one is Mayo and Mac. So Mac was at the press conference for Mayo on Wednesday, which remember, I felt like it was kind of odd, but it turns out Mac was just working out. So he showed up to the press conference after because he was in the building. So not as maybe odd as everybody thought it was. I thought it was weird. Like I thought he just showed up for it. I didn't realize that he was working out. So now that whole thing sort of makes more sense. But anyway, Mayo apparently is a fan of Mac Jones. So Mayo said this to Mike Reese, quote, Mac Jones was there working out. That attitude, that mentality of changing the page is something that I hold high. Okay, so Mayo is at least a fan of the person, Mac Jones, right? So Reese wrote in his column, could Jones's once promising career be revived, perhaps similar to what unfolded with the Miami Dolphins two years ago with Tua when Mike McDaniel was hired to replace Brian Flores? Now, Mike Reese is not writing this if he thinks it has zero chance of happening, right? Like Mike Reese talks to a lot of people, obviously, with the Patriots. So he doesn't write this if he doesn't think it at least has a chance of happening. He doesn't, he's not a hot take artist, right? <laughs> of course. So he's a dialed in reporter. And remember the other portion to this is as he writes this about Mac, the crafts like Mac, the crafts were blaming Bill two years ago for 
Mac falling off in terms of his production because he had a or because he had Matt Patricia rather as the offensive coordinator. That's why they went out and hired Bill O'Brien two years ago, or before last season, I should say. So going on, Reese writes, Mayo is leaving all possibilities open, saying he's in the evaluation stage at every position. He adds, Belichick was clearly done with Jones based on his bottom line actions in the regular season finale when he demoted Jones to the emergency third quarterback role behind Nathan Rourke, who had just joined the team 20 days prior. Some wondered if it was to protect Jones's health for future trade possibilities, but several players didn't buy that explanation because it ran counter to what Belichick always told them about how every decision is to help the team win. Those players hypothesized that Belichick was making a statement that game day roster spots are earned in Jones's scout team work, which at one point included too many interceptions. So Mac was throwing too many interceptions as the scout team quarterback, and guys weren't buying that Mac was sitting because of a trade situation down the road. They thought it was just because he was so bad as the scout team quarterback. So we talked about the turnovers throughout the season. Mac was really bad during practice, apparently, as well. Okay, so then Ryan Fitzpatrick, Reese writes, opined on Amazon Prime's pregame show leading into the December 7th Patriots-Steelers game that Jones was definitely broken as a quarterback from Belichick's coaching. He compared it to his former Miami teammate Tua, who was broken by Flores the way he treated him and coaching after him. Mike McDaniel came in and restored his confidence. Okay. So, like I said, Mike Reese writes this. You have to pay attention to it. First things first. I believe this would be horrible for the locker room, especially as Gerard Mayo is starting to instill his own culture, right, within the organization is now the guy who is the head coach. Max stinks. Your quarterback play was one of the main reasons the team stunk last year. Guys did not trust Mac Jones anymore. Mac Jones, Callahan reported about this, lost the locker room, right? Those guys had no confidence in Mac anymore. How could they? He just continued to throw the football away, right? So I just think from that perspective, you are sending the wrong message if you bring Mac Jones back. Oh, we'll get him right. Bill was the problem. That'd be another thing where we just point to, we've talked about it like with the front office where there's not changes there right now. You would basically be just saying, hey, Bill was the problem with Mac. It was just Bill's fault. No, that's not true. Right. We all know that just Mac is not a super talented quarterback. And based on what these guys have seen from Mac Jones the past two seasons, if you're serious about trying to turn this around and you're serious about winning, there's no way you can put that guy back in the locker room next season. Sorry. I mean, unless he's like a backup and you have an established guy or something along those lines, but you can't bring Mac back. It'd just be a bad look for Gerard Mayo to have Mac Jones as the guy and try to get your team to believe in you. If you have Mac Jones, if one of your first moves is keeping Mac Jones as your quarterback, you're going to lose the locker room. The locker room is not going to believe in you because all those guys just watch Mac Jones stink for two straight seasons. So you can't do that if you're Gerard Mayo. And by the way, the other thing I would say with this is the comparison to Tua that Ryan Fitzpatrick made is what would you be saving with Mac Jones, right? Because now if I'm the Bears... I'm moving on from Fields, and I'm taking Caleb Williams with the number one overall selection. But at least there's like an argument to keep Fields, right? He has unbelievable traits in terms of he's a game changer in terms of the running game. Mack is a well below average athlete for the NFL in terms of the quarterback position nowadays. He has a noodle arm, like one of the weaker arms you'll see at the NFL level. And he's turnover prone, right? And he has no superpower, right? Like, heck, he doesn't even have a power, right? Where we talk about 
Fields, he does have a superpower. At least he can run the football. But you look across the league and you say, oh, this guy can do this. This guy can do that. What can Mac do that's special? Nothing, right? He doesn't have any great trait. And Tua, like the comparison to Tua, this is what, what I'd say on this is, yes, Tua is very accurate. But are you paying that guy for the Miami Dolphins? They're kind of trapped there, right? Like, I don't envy their situation with their quarterback. Because Mike McDaniel, and I know Tua, like, for a while was the favorite to win the MVP, which I always thought was ridiculous. But anyway, Mike McDaniel did an outstanding job with Tua. And think about what it took to get Tua to look like that franchise-level quarterback that he looked like at times this season. You had Jalen Waddell, Tyreek Hill, two outstanding receivers, and you had an unbelievable running game with Mostert and Achan, right? So you had... Great running backs. You had a great scheme, a great play caller, and you had great receivers, right? And Tua down the stretch of the season wasn't even good. Like after the league started to figure out Mike McDaniel's offense a little bit. Last four games, including the postseason, he did not have a single game with a passer rating north of 100. He was in the 60s twice. Those final four games, he had five interceptions. Final two games of the regular season, Tua was 22nd of 28 qualifiers in EPA per play. I still don't think Tua is a great quarterback, right? And I know his numbers on the season look good, but he was exposed down the stretch of the season, and he was propped up by a great coach and great personnel. Tua's expected completion percentage was the third highest in the league, okay? His time to throw was the quickest in the league. So in other words, all this was schemed up for him. He was getting rid of the ball quickly because guys were wide open, him, right? That was more about the personnel and the coaching than it was the actual quarterback. Like Tua is not a great talent at the position, right? So when I look at it and I look at this comparison with the Patriots, the Patriots have the third pick in the draft. You cannot pass on taking a quarterback. This is a franchise altering selection. And if you decided not to go with a quarterback, like I said, I disagree with that. I would take a quarterback number three overall. You can't bring back Mac. You have to find another plan if you're doing that, right? So I get the point of this whole idea of maybe a new coach could save Mac Jones. I don't want to save him. And quite frankly, I would say this. If the Dolphins could upgrade their quarterback position, they would. Because they know everything has to be perfect for Tua. They have to have the perfect play call. They have to have the perfect personnel. They would move on from Tua if they had a better answer. And it's part of... They get a lot of credit for what they did with Tua, but even when I look at that comparison with Mac Jones, I'm saying, well, the Patriots right now don't have all that personnel to be able to do that. I know they have salary cap space and they have a high pick of the draft and all that, but you're not solving it right away with this offseason, right? In terms of you're going to have this great team, great scheme, great all that different type of stuff. I just don't see it. So from my perspective, I just don't believe Mac is worth saving. I, I Like this to me, wouldn't have even been a consideration. And the fact that this is out there and Mayo, if Mayo's actually thinking about this, and look, maybe it's, hey, maybe it's like a 5% chance Mayo would do this. Whatever it is, that concerns me a little bit because the last thing I want to see is Mac Jones. And the other thing I would look at too is, from a fan's perspective, nobody wants to watch him anymore, okay? And look, not that the team should be making decisions based on the fans, but I do not want to see that whatsoever. Okay, next up on this list. Nick Cayley. So Adam Schefter reported on Sunday that Nick Cayley is interviewing for the Patriots offensive coordinator position on Monday. So when Josh McDaniels left to take the Raiders head coaching job, 
The first guy I wanted to be the offensive coordinator was Kevin O'Connell. Now, obviously that couldn't work out for the Patriots because that offseason, Kevin O'Connell got the head coaching job with the Minnesota Vikings. But he worked with McVay in Washington. And then, of course, he went to L.A. with McVay. He was the OC there for two years, not calling plays, but still around McVay. And of course, right now, he calls plays for the Minnesota Vikings. So that was not a possibility with Kevin O'Connell. He becomes the Vikings head coach, as we mentioned. Kirk Cousins was having, by the way, his best season prior to the injury. And they won all those close games two years ago. Like Kevin O'Connell's a good coach. But when he was not available, the guy I wanted the Patriots to hire was to promote from within with Nick Cayley, right? Because the Patriots at that point in time, they were going into a rebuild. Nick Cayley had been with the Patriots since 2015. He was the tight ends coach from 17 to 19. And this quote always stuck out to me from Dante Scarnecchia in NBC Sports Boss. He was talking to Phil Perry. He said, and this is from a couple of years ago, Nick Cayley has been there a long time and he coaches the tight ends, which is really good within this context. He coaches a position that transcends the whole offense. He's been in all the meetings, running game, passing game, and I'm sure he would give a lot of help to whoever is calling the game, okay? So he's saying that the tight ends coach is going to, in some sense, impact or at least have conversations with the play caller in terms of input of what's going on because he has to know all these positions as the tight ends coach. Remember, Sean McVay was a tight ends coach before he became an offensive coordinator. So I thought this was the move back then to give Caleb the job, promote from within. I love the idea of a tight ends coach becoming the offensive coordinator. But now, and it, it, it was kind of aggravating because Bill usually likes to promote from within and he usually likes to reward guys. And then he just had that bizarre Patricia situation. But anyway, we know that McVay is a genius with quarterbacks, but he's also a genius in the running game. So I think about this. Well, hold on. You've had this guy, Nick Haley, who's still young. He's 40 years old. He's been coaching with Sean McVay for a couple of years now. Like this is the best case scenario for the Patriots in terms of a couple of years ago, Kaylee didn't have this experience with Sean McVay. Now it's like, oh, we can bring him back and he actually knows how to run things that Sean McVay runs. Remember like the Patriots wanted to run the Shanahan system, but they had nobody that could run it. Well, it's like, okay, this guy, you talk about the best offensive minds of the NFL. It's Kyle Shanahan and it's Sean McVay and it's Andy Reid. And you just had... Nick Cayley, who you already know, we know that's important to the crafts, right? Like having a relationship with the guys in the coaching staff, which we, we've already had that conversation. I want to get into whether that's right or wrong, but that is sort of important to the crafts that they know these guys. And he's been spending the last two years with one of the best offensive minds in the NFL. Sign me up for that, right? So anyway, you think about this in terms of the running game stuff. We saw what he did with Todd Gurley, but if you look at this past season, Kyron Williams, their stud running back, this past season... He was at 3.2 yards before contact. That was the second best among running backs to Christian McCaffrey. So in other words, that running game is so well executed by the Rams and it's schemed up so perfectly that this guy's not getting touched until he's 3.2 yards down the field, right? Because it's being schemed up by the offensive play caller in Sean McVay and Nick Cayley's in all these meetings, right? You look at the fact that Zeke and Ramondre last year were 37th and 38th in that category. And this guy, Kyron Williams, is second behind only Christian McCaffrey, right? And what he does is he adjusts to his personnel and he adjusts to his quarterback, right? You think about Jared Goff. When they went to the Super Bowl, and I know the Patriots, of course, beat them. But that season in 2018, Jared Goff was really, really good during the regular season. Well, how about this? 35.8% of Goff's dropbacks that year came out of play action. 
which was the second highest rate in the NFL. He threw for the most yards out of play action, and he had the most touchdowns, 16 out of play action. So with Goff, he wanted to control everything, right? He wanted to, hey, this is where you're going. If that's not there, this is your second read. And they did a really good job with that with Jared Goff. Now, eventually, he wanted a more talented guy in Matthew Stafford, right? So with Stafford, he doesn't like to use play action, so they don't use much play action, but he still schemed it up. The Super Bowl year in 2021, very low play action rate, but here's what's interesting. He was kept clean on 73.8% of his dropbacks, the third best rate in the NFL. So yes, part of that is you had good offensive line play, but also part of it is that means when your quarterback's kept clean, that you're scheming things up for him. He had 40 touchdowns when he was kept clean, the most of the NFL. So this season, Stafford had the... And that's including the postseason, I should mention, the 40 touchdowns when he was with the Rams. But 40 when the pocket was kept clean, playoffs and the regular season. This season, Stafford had the seventh lowest aggressiveness rating. We talk about that a lot. That's the amount of throws into tight windows, okay? When the closest defender is one yard away or closer. So seventh lowest aggressiveness rating. And his air yards per attempt were the eighth highest. So he's throwing the ball down the field, yet he's not throwing it to tight windows. That's a very rare combination. And why is that happening? Because guys are being schemed open. So you say, well, Brian, hold on. That's Sean McVay, not Nick Haley, right? Like Sean McVay is orchestrating that whole offense. He's calling the plays. So it's not Nick Haley that should get credit for this. It's Sean McVay. I totally agree with you. But the point here is Kevin O'Connell, he wasn't calling plays for the Rams when he was there. Sean McVay was. And what happened when Kevin O'Connell went to the Vikings. He's an elite play caller. Okay, you think about the other guy that is a great play caller in Kyle Shanahan. Well, Mike McDaniel wasn't calling the plays for Shanahan, yet Mike McDaniel goes to the Miami Dolphins, tricks everybody, as we mentioned earlier, to thinking two is a good quarterback, but Mike McDaniels, Mike McDaniel rather, wasn't calling plays. He's an elite play caller. So the point is, when you're around these guys, McVay and Shanahan, the institutional knowledge carries over to your next destination. So this to me makes perfect sense. I want a young guy that knows all the modern stuff, the buttons to click, that can help develop this quarterback coming out of the collegiate level, right? So he has the Pats connections, which which will satisfy, uh, satisfy the crafts. That seems, as we mentioned, important to them. So this to me makes a ton of sense to bring Nick Cayley in. Now, the other guy that's interesting here Albert Breer reports that they plan on interviewing Rams passing game coordinator and quarterbacks coach Zach Robinson. So also on the McVay stuff, which I love. Now, he was drafted by the Patriots, if you remember, and he's been with McVay since 2019. The Saints and the Bears interviewed him for their opening in terms of offensive coordinator. He also spent some time at Pro Football Focus, which we've seen that happen recently. Bobby Slowick did that with the Houston Texans. So... This is an interesting one to me where it's like, young guy, 37 years old, has Patriots ties and McVay ties. So you have two options here if you're the Patriots. Now, of course, one of them may take a different job, but I feel like they're in a good spot from an offensive coordinator position when I hear who they're interviewing. I really like both these candidates that the Patriots are going after, and it's one of the best things I've heard so far about the Patriots offseason. I haven't been super enthusiastic as we've gone through like the GM stuff. But this, to me, I like this. I totally like this idea with the Patriots. Okay. Last but not least here in terms of my four takes to start the pod. The Bruins, they get to 28-8-9 with a 9-4 win 
over the Montreal Canadiens on Saturday night. Nine goals. So they're now on a four-game winning streak. Danton Heinen had a hat trick in that game, okay? It just feels like, to me, this organization, they always find a way to respond. And this year, you lose all these guys last year. We're talking about Taylor Hall, and we're talking about Bertuzzi. We're talking about Krejci. We're talking about your captain, Patrice Bergeron, retires. This has happened so many times over the past decade where I felt like, nah, this is it for the Bruins, and they continue to respond. After 2019, they lose the Stanley Cup final to the St. Louis Blues. I feel like, okay, yeah, that's it's going to be tough to respond after that. Pre-COVID, they had the best record in the NHL. Best record of the NHL. And then you have this situation where you have Bruce Cassidy goes to Vegas and you're feeling they decided to move on from Cassidy. It feels like, you know what? They're probably going to take a step back. And guess what happens? <laughs> they get Krejci to come back. Jake DeBrusque has his best season. Jim Montgomery really works out as the coach. You have the best record in the most points in the history of the NHL. And yes, Bruce Cassidy had a success, but they find the new head coach. So I've seen this so many times where... Now, after this year, I feel like, okay, they'll be a playoff team, but they won't really be a threat. And now they are a legitimate Stanley Cup final threat, right? And Don Sweeney deserves a ton of credit for finding these guys that fit. We mentioned Danton Heinen, the way that he's contributing. He has 17 points. He had 22 all of last season. Did anyone see this coming, that Heinen was going to come back to this team and contribute in this way? Did not see that. You think about some of the moves in recent years, like Linus Olmark won a Vesna. Okay, nobody thought when they brought him over from Buffalo that this guy was going to be a great goaltender for you. And obviously, Swayman has been the better goaltender this year. But the point is, he played at a Vesna Trophy level last year during the regular season. I know we can look at the playoffs, but the point being is, that was a great find. And he's been great. Like, you brought somebody in from a different organization that was better for you than he was elsewhere. James Van Riemsdyk, different situation there where... You lose a guy like Bertuzzi, and you're saying, hey, we need a net front presence. Reemstike has, Van Reemstike has provided that. You look at it on the season. He already has 29 points in 41 games. He had 20 points in 61 games all last season. So he's already tied that in 20 fewer games. By the way, if you're comparing the Bertuzzi situation, he has 19 points compared to Van Reemstike, who has 29. So a guy that, personally, I was worried about losing, you've replaced him relatively easily. So these things that I was like worried about in the offseason, the Bruins have found a way, like this is why I should have just believed they were going to be able to do it because they do it so many times. And we've talked about the contributor that Charlie Coyle has been. And Charlie Coyle has had his best years at the NHL with the Bruins. That was an absolute steal when they traded for him in 2019. The Lindholm trade gave you another top tier defenseman with McAvoy, of course, already in the building. So that was huge. So you've been able for a long time to be able to find the right pieces to put around your core if you're the Bruins. So you think about the consistency with this organization. Going back to the 07-08 season, the Bruins have missed the playoffs just twice. So they've made the playoffs in 14 of 16 seasons. And you've gone through different coaches. You've gone through different executives, right? But you look at this most recent trend here. The Bees have now, and it's going to be eight in a row, but they're on a streak of seven straight playoff appearances. And look, I understand with this team, there has been pain, right? The first round exit last year after setting the record. The cup final in 2013, we don't have to go to the, through the Tuca thing there. The cup in 2019, where you had game seven on your home ice and you lost that to, I still believe, an inferior Blues team that beat you at your own game. They were more physical than you. They beat you up. Like that's a loss that is always going to sting for Bruins fans. 
So I think because of that, because you had the loss in 13, because you had the loss in 19, and because last year you didn't even make it out of the first round after you set the record, I do feel like this organization has sort of been underrated in terms of what they've been able to do from a consistency perspective because they haven't gotten that second cup, right? And even though with this core, and most of the core now is gone from the Stanley Cup team, right? Like You got Marsha, that's pretty much it. But if they get that second cup, I think we look at this organization totally differently, right? Because we can say, okay, four Stanley Cup appearances since 2011, the best regular season ever. If they get the second cup, you say, okay, two time, two Stanley Cup championship or two Stanley Cups out of the four appearances, best record in the history of the NHL. That's a pretty ridiculous run. The question is going to be, what can you now add at the deadline to sort of help this team? And the other component to this is Pasta, as we mentioned the other day, he's having an unbelievable regular season. He's probably going to end up with less goals, but he's had a better season from my perspective than he even had last year. Like he's been incredible for this team. Can he have that sort of legendary postseason run, which puts you into a different stratosphere? Because we see it with the greats when you get into the postseason, you have that run, you have that vintage playoff run. And quite frankly, Pasta has not been great in the postseason. I'm not saying that he's sucked. I'm just saying that he hasn't had that signature run. Could this be his season where he has more of a leadership role, where he's still been incredible in every way, shape, or form? Could this be the Pasta year? Because that's the way that this team is going to win the Stanley Cup. If Pasta goes to a different level, goes to a different stratosphere when this team gets into the playoffs. But I do, they've been a ton of fun to watch this year. And as I said, like I'm an idiot for not expecting that they were going to be a lot of fun to watch and the Bruins were going to be able to find the right pieces to put around this core. But it really does with this organization. I mean, it's similar to the Celtics in some ways. It comes down to the postseason. What can you do when you get to the playoffs? Can you actually get another Stanley Cup? Because then... You look back at the past 10 years or so, you're like, holy shit, this team's been incredible. But it's just, you need to get that second cup from my perspective. All right, coming up next, we'll get into the Celts. If you've been watching the NFL playoffs from the sidelines, there's still time to get in the game with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. New customers bet this Sunday's conference championship games with $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. FanDuel has so many ways for you to pick up a W. I'm looking at this AFC championship game, and I know Baltimore, the three and a half point favorites, but I like the Chiefs. I mean, the Chiefs, they just beat the Buffalo Bills in that classic on Sunday, and this Chiefs team, until they get knocked off, I'm not betting against the Chiefs anymore. I've made that mistake. So if you want to follow my picks, go to FanDuel right now. Get started with $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. Just visit FanDuel.com Pike to join today. That's FanDuel.com slash Pipe. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. $5 pregame money line wager required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So I do want to get to the Celts, as I mentioned, in just a second here. But we're recording after the Celtics beat the Rockets and right after the Chiefs beat the Bills wide right again for the Bills. It's unbelievable to me. And you start to think about this now. We were talking about Belichick earlier. Sean McDermott, man, I hope you keep your job because 
This team, they just cannot get over the hump, and you wonder what changes are coming. They already moved on from their offensive coordinator, of course, during the season, Ken Dorsey. They give the job to Joe Brady. But man, you wonder, like, they just can't get it done. And they had so many opportunities to win this game. Stephon Diggs has the ball go right through his hands. Josh Allen hits him with the perfect pass. That should have been caught by Stephon Diggs, who's one of the highest paid receivers in the NFL. And then later on in that drive at the end of the game, Allen has Diggs wide open, doesn't see him. He goes for the shot down the field, doesn't end up with the touchdown there, and you end up with the incompletion. And then, of course, after that, as we alluded to, you have the missed field goal. But man, the Bills just cannot figure it out. They cannot win these big games. And one thing that I was thinking about during this game, too, and the lead up, it kept being mentioned like this is the new Brady Manning. What happened to Burrow? Like Burrow misses the playoffs one year because he's dealing with an injury. He's beaten Pat Mahomes in the postseason. And they played a classic last year that Cincinnati could have easily won. So Burrow actually does beat Pat Mahomes. I don't know why this rivalry is now Allen versus Mahomes. And we've just forgotten about the whole Joe Burrow part of this whole thing. But the Chiefs, I got to tell you, I picked them to lose the game. I thought Buffalo would finally get it done. I feel like an idiot now for that. But I always want the Chiefs to lose because I don't want to see another dynasty in the NFL now that the Patriots, of course, aren't a dynasty. And if you look at it now... They've won two out of the last four. They've made it to the conference championship game every year in Pat Mahomes' career. They win another one here. They win their third Super Bowl. This is a dynasty. I mean, there's no way around it. We consider that Patriots dynasty the second one, I should say, even though they didn't win back-to-back. That's a dynasty. You go to four Super Bowls, you win three of them during that stretch. The same thing is going to be said about this Chiefs team. Yeah, they didn't win back-to-back, and who knows? Maybe they win this one, and then they win another one. And look, they still get to... Take care of a really good Baltimore team. That Baltimore team is awesome, and you'd still have to beat whoever comes out of the NFC. But I'm always sharing against the Chiefs because I don't want to see another dynastic run, and the Chiefs are on the verge of doing this. And the reason the Chiefs remind me of the Patriots is you think about this Chiefs team, they didn't feel like, for lack of a better term, because Mahomes is still relatively young, a vintage Chiefs team. This isn't the wagon that we've seen recently in terms of their offense, but they figure out a way to get it done. We saw that with the Patriots. Their last Super Bowl in 18, that was certainly not a vintage Patriots team. They lost to the Tennessee Titans that year. Remember, they lost to the, and the Titans were not good that season. That's when they were playing Mariota. And they lost to Matt Patricia that season, who was coaching the Detroit Lions. It just, it was not a great team that the Patriots had that season, but somehow they figured it out when they got into the postseason. And that's why this Chiefs team, it reminds me of the Patriots where, They just find a way to figure it out. So I cannot wait for that game next weekend. All the pressure to me, like people can point to the Chiefs because they're trying to go on this dynastic run. All the pressure is on Baltimore. Okay, Baltimore is playing at home. Lamar Jackson is going to be the MVP. Yes, they beat the Texans, but you sort of got an easy draw in the first round. And I thought the Baltimore Ravens, they played not great football in the first half, obviously came alive in the second half, but Lamar's the one that has something to prove. Mahomes has nothing to prove at this particular point. Yeah, they won another Super Bowl, but all that pressure is going to be on Baltimore. And this Chiefs team, it feels like they're starting to come together. Kelsey was awesome in this game. Pacheco, that guy runs the ball incredibly hard. He was awesome in this game. So man, like you got to slay the dragon if you're Lamar Jackson in Baltimore. So cannot wait for that game. But I want the Chiefs to lose. I'm just not going to pick against them this week. I'm going to pick the Chiefs to win. I'm not going to pick Baltimore with after I saw the Chiefs beat the Bills. I'm not doing that again. I'm not making the mistake. Uh, for now on, it's like Brady. I'm just going to bet on Mahomes until he loses. I don't even care if they make the Super Bowl and who comes out of the NFC. 
I'm going to pick Mahomes, bottom line. Okay, so I did want to get to the Celtics, of course. They end up beating the Rockets. They sweep Ime on the season. It was interesting to me that Jalen finishes with a triple-double, and he got the the final assist was late to O'Shea Brissett. I didn't have a problem with them going for that late because you had a situation where Ime took a timeout with 28 seconds left to get Jalen Green back in the game. And Thompson followed Tatum with like six seconds left. So at that point of the game, like the Rockets were still trying to win. Ime still had his guys out there and he was doing offense to defensive subs. So I didn't have an issue with it whatsoever. It's been a tough couple of games here for Jalen. And I say that from a scoring perspective, obviously he was really good passing the ball in this game tonight. He's really good in terms of attacking the boards, which is a good sign for Jalen because when he's not shooting well, sometimes Like in the past, he wouldn't have a good floor game. And tonight, obviously, with the triple-double, he was awesome. But last couple games here, last two games going back to Friday, 12 of 33, 36.4%, and 2 of 12 from deep, 16.7%. The more concerning thing to me, I think he just had an off couple of games here in terms of his shooting. And I love, like I said, the other stuff he was doing. The more concerning thing to me is, this is now the second straight game where he's missed late free throws. He missed a pair in that Nuggets game late. And he missed a pair late in this game against the Rockets. And Jalen has had his issues with big free throws in the past. We've seen this multiple times with Jalen. So that is one thing to just like keep in the back of your mind for when this team gets into the postseason. Because it feels like there's a lot of times. And not feels like it's happened. Remember in the Knicks game last year where Julius Randle was like laughing at him. And now we've seen it twice in the past two games where he's missed late free throws. But all in all, I mean, the guy got a triple double. You got to give him credit for that. Even when his shot's not falling, he finds a way to contribute. Okay. Porzingis was just incredible in this game. He goes for 32 points and he has five blocks. And we mentioned Jalen struggled shooting. So did Tatum. I mean, Tatum's four of 17 in this game, one of six, 18 points. Tatum's last two games, he's 13 of 41, 31.7%. He's two of 14 from deep, 14.3%. And he has been so good since the start of December has Tatum. So just like I mentioned with Jalen, I'm not concerned about him struggling shooting. I think the more impressive thing is now Porzingis, you can just say, hey, let's just give the ball to the seven foot two guy and he'll win it for us, right? This is what's different about last year is you now have a guy that, hey, if Tatum doesn't have it going, if Jalen Brown doesn't have it going, this is a guy that you can legitimately play through. And Porzingis in this game tonight, he hits six threes. Now, unfortunately, I doubt he plays against the Dallas Mavericks. I mean, Missoula took him out with like, what, a minute and change left in this game. I doubt he plays against the Mavericks. And Al, of course, set out the first side of the back-to-back. So he'll play in this game tomorrow. I don't think that Porzingis will play. And this is just what I loved about this game with Porzingis is they realize right away, like obviously Jabari Smith's not playing in this game. Van Fleet didn't play for what it's worth either. Not that it would affect this. But maybe Jabari Smith is the guy that they put on him because they didn't want to put Shangun on him. They wanted to put on a wing on him. They tried... Whitmore and Tate. Whitmore is 6'7 and Tate 6'4. Porzingis is 7'2. So early in the game, he's just hitting threes, raining threes. And then after that, he's just taking advantage of these smaller defenders, right? I mean, you think about it at one point, he just literally shot a jumper right over Whitmore. After that, he literally had Thompson right in front of him, just shot over him. That's like one of the most impressive things about Porzingis is it doesn't bother him when you're in his airspace because he's so tall that he just shoots over these guys. So an awesome Porzingis game and an awesome Derek White game. Derek White had a career high tonight, 12 rebounds. Like at this point in your career, you usually don't have career highs in rebounds. Derek White did 21 points in this one. He hit what? Uh, three threes in this game. He One of the things that impressed me about White in this game is 
He had a pull up too. We're seeing a lot more of the Derek White floater game lately. And one of the things he had is he had this pull up too, where you saw the strength of Derek White, where he just dislodged Dylan Brooks, who Dylan Brooks is a sturdy guy, sturdy defender. He dislodged him, made it a 70 to 55 game. So that was impressive. I like that. Hit a big three late in the game. So Derek White was awesome. The rebounding was awesome. This is what we expect from Derek White. And the thing is, when Tatum and Jalen aren't hitting their shots, you're Third and fourth best players just go completely nuts in this game when we're talking about Porzingis and Derek White. So that's the positive about this team, and that's sort of the depth of this team, right? That, hey, it doesn't matter if a couple of guys don't have it going. We have two other guys that if they wanted to or if you need them to, they can step up and give you a combined north of 50 points like Porzingis and, of course, White combined to do in this particular game. All right, a couple other Celtics notes I wanted to get to here. So first of all, Jordan Walsh was up with the team. I was hoping they kind of had a blowout, so we saw some Jordan Walsh. We did see Brissett, which remember I questioned why Brissett didn't play against the Nuggets. Some good Brissett minutes in this game. He even hit a, a pull-up jumper in this one, creating extra opportunities in terms of the offensive glass. But I was hoping that we talk about Brissett and him getting more minutes at the wing position. I was hoping that this was sort of a blowout because it felt like at one point it was going to be that way. And we got to see more Jordan Walsh. Because we really haven't seen a ton of him, right? He made his debut, what, last week? He's got the seven foot two wingspan. And remember Brad Stevens a couple of weeks ago said they're looking for a wing with size. And when you think about that, you think about the guys on the roster like O'Shea Brissett getting more playing time. But you also think about the guy that you drafted in the second round in Jordan Walsh, who they sort of been getting him ready at the G League level. He's shooting 37.3% on threes in the G League this season. So if he continues to progress, do we get to see some more Jordan Walsh? Because he has the traits of a legit NBA defender. This is the reason the Celtics drafted him, because he has wing size and he should be able to defend up and down the lineup. So I'm hoping as we go down the stretch of the season here that we see a little bit more Jordan Walsh. And I was hoping to see him in this game tonight, but unfortunately the game was too close to give him burn based on where the Celtics are at right now. Okay, the, the other thing is this, the Celtics in the third quarter in this game, just 20 points. They let them back, and they let the Rockets back in the game. Remember on Friday, 21 points. So in the past two games, 20 points and 21 points in the third quarter, no team on the season is south of 26. And I thought they sort of got away from these third quarter problems. But if you look at the season now, first quarter, the Celtics are second in offensive rating, the first in net. In the second quarter, they're second in offensive rating. They're third in net rating. In the third quarter, they're 19th in offensive rating, and they're 11th in net. In the fourth, a little bit better, 11th in offensive rating, 7th in net. So I don't know, like this third quarter thing, it was a problem, then it wasn't a problem, and in these last two games, it's become a problem again. So I mean, we'll monitor this in the Dallas game, and we'll certainly monitor this going forward, but... Not a good sign to see them struggling a bit in the third quarter. And the other thing I did like about this game is you think about it from this perspective. The Celtics have not lost back-to-back -back games since the 6th and 8th of November when they lost to Minnesota and then they lost to Philadelphia. So that is a sign of a good team when you're not losing back-to-back -back games. You just turn the page from the following night or two nights ago in this case and you win the next game. So that's an impressive thing. One note that we didn't get to on Friday night that is kind of weird. Kendrick Perkins, who is now just doing ESPN, he's not doing NBC Sports Boston anymore. So after the game 
on Friday night. He says, if you take out Joe Missoula's brain and put it in a bird, the bird will fly backwards. Now, he used this same joke with Kyrie Irving years ago. I think it was during like the COVID where they were trying to figure out what they were doing with the COVID situation. Like, hey, are we going to go to Orlando? Are we going to have a bubble? I think that's what he said it in reference to. But he used this joke about Kyrie Irving. And to me, it's like I, I was aggravated with some of the lineup choices that they made in the other game in the game the other night and I would have liked to get them see them get to the free throw line but that's a little extreme okay to say if you put his his brain in a bird it's going to fly backwards like you're calling Joe Missoula dumb he's not dumb like if you want to criticize him fine but I think I know Perk like he's just essentially since he's gone to ESPN he's just turned into like a hot take machine that's like sort of what he does so I guess I shouldn't entertain this and like give it attention. I just thought it was a little over the top for him to say something along those lines. To call somebody stupid like that, to me, that's just ridiculous. And quite the way that he does it, I mean, it's just kind of disrespectful. I'm laughing because it's just idiotic for somebody to say that about somebody else. From my perspective, like I wouldn't say that, hey, you put a, you put a, a brain, you put Joe Mazzullo's brain in a bird, it's going to fly backwards. Like you're just doing that for laughs. Like that's what he's doing. He's trying to like, I don't know why he's so obsessed with like getting hits on social media and like throwing out all these crazy hot takes all the time. Like remember, this is the same guy just a couple of weeks ago had DeJounte Murray as one of the top five guards in the Eastern Conference that he didn't have Donovan Mitchell. And he thought the list was right. So I guess like this is what he does. He just tries to get attention, throwing stuff out like this, which is kind of a shame because I mean, he's, he was a Celtic, he was on the Celtics when they won a championship and all that. But now he's just, he's just sort of turned into like a guy that just throws out crazy things. Like he's just completely over the top at this particular point in time. All right, coming up next, we'll check in with Jamie McClellan. There's a lot that could impress you about the all new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? Quite the day, quite the night. A lot of couch time today. It was great. Fantastic. Some good football today and basketball. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the Lions game was incredibly mm-hmm. entertaining. I thought the Bucks had a chance in that one. And unfortunately for the Bucks, they didn't pull through. But I feel good about that. Like, I, the Lions are a better team than the Bucks, So I'm glad that they get into the playoffs or into the championship game against the 49ers. The 49ers are a team that lives in the NFC championship game. Now you get this great Lions story. And the other thing that I'd say as it pertains to the Lions-Bucks game, the one thing I was rooting for is for the Bucks to score a touchdown at the end just because they went for the, they did the analytics play right. where they went for two early. They didn't get it, which by the way, okay, so if you want to do that, this thing to me about Todd Bowles that is so perplexing, 
he doesn't go for a fourth and one early in the game. And then he <laughs> right. takes the right. analytics play later. Like there's no rhyme or reason to his decision making process. But the other thing is this, like if that's your play for a two point conversion, it's just a fade to Mike Evans. Maybe you shouldn't go for two. I don't have a problem <laughs> with that because you can win the game if you get that and score another touchdown, right? Like you won't have to go for two the next time. You just kick the PAT if you get the first one. But if you're going to do that, at least have a good plan. So that's what I was rooting for. I was rooting for another touchdown late in the game for the Bucs just to see what would happen in their next two-point conversion attempt because based on the last one, my <laughs> prediction would be they would have fucked it up. So I would, from, so from an entertainment standpoint, I would have loved to see that. Yeah, it's a good point, actually, Brian. It makes me think of uh, the Lions when they played the Cowboys in the regular season. Obviously, it didn't work, that two-point conversion, where they have the ineligible lineman, but... So the divisional round of the playoffs, you'd think they would have a, a play that they've been practicing, you know, a little trick play or something like the Patriots one where they do the direct snap to the running back or something unusual. But it's true. Not a very uh, inspired play call. Well, and like the Patriots say, and I'm sure this is true for most teams, but they say they usually have like Edelman said they usually have like four or five mm-hmm. and a couple of they feel good about about the two point conversions. Because remember, when the Patriots came back against Atlanta, they had to use a bunch of them because yeah. they had to go for two on back-to-back drives. And they had the one, which is like their famous play where they do the fake. Brady like will pretend that the ball goes over his head and it's a direct snap to the running back. Yeah, and the running back runs it in. And they also, they always have that pick play too, where in the Super Bowl against Atlanta, it was a pick play for Amendola. They always yeah. run that one as well. So like they kind of have their plays they want to go to there. And it just felt like, that was bizarre. Like that you're going, you're doing the analytics thing you're going for, but your plan is like, and I don't, Mike Evans is awesome. And he was awesome in that game outside, you know, early on when he couldn't catch the ball and they had the interception, but that was entertaining. And this one was awesome. Like I, in a sense, feel bad for Josh Allen because he made some absolutely insane throws in this game, like insane throws. I thought that quite frankly, his receivers let him down in this yeah. game and the bills got some breaks too right like you think about the the touchback that they get when who was it uh mccall hardman was it mccall yeah. hardman that did that or was it mccall hardman i'm trying to remember now back he's the one that fumbled it out, yeah. out of the yeah, end zone I think it was hardman. yeah so that whole situation where you, it's like dude you're about to go down 10 and then oh no we get the ball back and then they oh. ended up punting it away so they had so many opportunities you finally got this game at home you got Deion dawkins this week talking about hey you know what, Pat Mahomes has never really even played in Buffalo because he's never played here with with the crowd at full capacity. And you're like, oh man, like, is this finally going to be the Bills chance? And then no, they stink. They can't get it done, which is just like, oh, it's such like a a crazy night too. You got Travis, uh, Travis Kelsey's brother, Jason Kelsey, like (laughs) jumping into the crowd, chugging beers before the game. He's drinking out of a bowling ball. So just an awesome night. And then (laughs) For the Bills to have that that loss, man, that is just oh, you just I, I legit feel bad for Bills fans. I feel bad for Josh Allen, and I'll tell you this: Stephon Diggs did not show up. Didn't show up, man. He's had his issues over the past I don't know year and change, going back to last year's playoff loss. He didn't show up. Bottom line, no. I, I mean that drop was no show. appalling, appalling from him. That drop. I mean that was he threw that ball like sixty yards, Josh Allen. He put it right in his hands. That was a huge play. Um, obviously, the kick. I just think it's like they're they're not. Uh, they are related. I feel like the whole Buffalo like curse, and then the kick. It's like the pressure of failure. It's like obviously he's thinking about it 
maybe not consciously, but subconsciously. And it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, I, he was about to kick the ball. And I'm like, he's going to miss the ball. And I said that because we've just seen the story a million times and lo and behold, he misses. And I just feel like it just, it just like builds on itself, you know, this pressure in Buffalo. So now think about it. The quarterbacks, we have Pat Mahomes, like the best quarterback in the yeah. sport, two-time MVP, two-time <clears throat> champ, going up against Lamar Jackson, who is about to win his second MVP. And mm-hmm. then at the NFC, we have Brock Purdy that <laughs> right. played like absolute shit. Terrible. No other quarterback in the field team would have won if they played like that. He was so bad in that game. Jordan Love, he was awesome until he wasn't. Like the Packers were, I thought the Packers were the better team in that particular game. So now you have Brock Purdy against Jared Goff. And Goff's a guy that has played in a lot of big games. He's been to a Super Bowl. We all know the story, former number one pick, but it's like, okay, former number one pick who, yeah, the Rams gave up on him, but he's proven over the past couple of years he's a good quarterback. Two of the best five quarterbacks, I would say, in the NFL, depending on where you rank Lamar. And then Brock Purdy. Like, the, if Shanahan wins a Super Bowl with this guy, I mean, I know the rest of the roster is loaded, but if they win a Super Bowl with this guy, it's like, dude, you got you to gotta rethink the sport because he's not, like, I know his numbers are all great. He's just not that good. Like, and like, hopefully that it's not like a situation where they have bad weather again, because you're fucked if that happens. Man, like, I I, I know a lot of people have criti- not criticized him, but been like, oh, this is like the one question mark. But it really is like you take so many other court, like put Kirk Cousins on that team. Yeah. Like nobody's beating him. And I'm talking about Kirk Cousins. He was like he was like minus odds to win the MVP like through week eleven or twelve even, which was crazy. I but, know um, <laughs> it was wild. How many guys do I have to name until you say like where Brock Purdy ranks on the Niners? Just their offense, right? So like, stop me when I get to a guy <laughs> okay. that he's better than Trent Williams, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey. So he's at best their sixth best offensive yeah. player. And I'm not even going through all their linemen. I'm, I just went through Trent Williams. He's like <laughs> yeah. the best left tackle in the game. But think about that. At best, he's the sixth best player on their offense. I bet on the Packers, Brian, last night. And I, I, I text people. I'm like, I, I felt so good about it when they were gearing up to kick that field goal to go up seven points. I'm like, Brock Purdy looks like you know deer in the headlights. Like, this is over. And then I've basically never seen a team come back and win the game with a quarterback playing like that. Like, it just shows, like you said, they just have such a stacked offense. They're able to get past it. I mean, they literally just hand the ball to McCaffrey and he goes for 20 yards. But anyone else, I agree. You put Kirk Cousins or someone like that, they probably already have a ring. I can't wait, man. I love the, I love this weekend. I do love the conference championship weekend, too, because you get sort of, I mean, on the East Coast here. I mean, you're... You're recording right now in California on the East Coast. So you get like the mid-afternoon game and then sort of like the not too late night game. Like yeah. the second game starts at what it's usually like six. It's usually 630 here Eastern time. I'll, I'll double check here. But usually yeah, I think it's the goes. same as what they did today. Yeah. Three o'clock and then 630. I mean, that's perfect. It's not too late. You know what I mean? I hate the like the eight the 820 starts. Yeah. You know? I mean, I personally don't hate it, but. Like most people, like eight twenty. By the time it gets to halftime, it's like nine thirty. It's tough to make it up in the second half. Saturday, you don't mind it because it's Saturday. But I love that. I love the three and then the six thirty. And I don't. I believe the Celtics actually play on Saturday night, so we won't have a conflict with the NBA, at least from a Celtics perspective. Yeah, the Celt. Yo, the Celtics Clippers Saturday night at the Garden. That's a fun. That's one. a good game for the Celtics too. I mean, 
Yeah, they got a big week. You play Dallas on Monday night, then you play Miami on Thursday night, and then the Clippers, who are playing some of the best basketball in the league. So fun weekend, Jamie, no doubt about it. That's right. Oh, Brian, I meant to ask you, though. So what happens if you put Kendrick Perkins' brain inside a bird? What does it do? I don't even want to think about that. That's a good point. <laughs> dude, like, what? I don't know why he's got to get so personal with it. Like, dude, relax. He basically blamed the whole game on Missoula the other night. It's like, dude, at some point, your guy's got to hit shots, right? Like, they hit 25% of their open threes, which is when a defender is four to six feet away. Now, they did hit their wide open threes, but... Look, they had a bad night. To make this like a whole thing about Joe Mazzula, I thought that was a little much. I mean, it's not even a playoff game. And he's saying like, oh, the Nuggets with Mike Malone, they were running all this great stuff down the stretch of the game. They scored 102 points. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's yeah. not like, like, I know Murray had a great game and I know Jokic had a great game, but I didn't think it was like anything spectacular that Mike Malone was doing. It was his superstars were better than the Celtics stars in the game. That's the bottom line. So... To act like that was to act like Missoula was like has no idea what he's doing and he can't run his nose. It's mm -hmm. just to me that that was completely unfair. And the way that he labels it, it was just like the whole bird comparison is just I think that's out of line, quite frankly. You could see like people on the people on the show with him were like, uh, what? No, both of the women on the show look completely shocked when that came out. Even Richard Jefferson was like, Ooh. but he he gets points for creativity, though he did not say. I don't even know what the fuck that means. The bird flies backwards, still flying. Like, I, what what does this mean? I don't know. I just he's always like too on when he's on first take. He's always like he or the NBA Today. He does that show a lot with Malika Andrews. Like mm -hmm. the, the crew kind of varies from day to day but like zach lowe will be on it brian windhorse will be on it a lot of different people richard jefferson will be on it J jj reddick from time to time austin rivers last week but he just like he makes these faces when anybody else is talking <laughs> like they're complete idiots like nobody's opinion could possibly be right but his and then he remember last year jj was like dude are you moaning because he just like he breathes so hard when he's not talking he's like can you stop moaning in my ear? So I don't know, man. I feel like when he's on these shows with other people, and I'm sure he's a great guy. I'm sure he's a nice guy, but it's like, dude, every time somebody else talks, he makes like these faces. It's it's like he's just he thinks that everybody else is an idiot every time they give a take. Like there's no way anybody else could be right yeah. but him. It's incredible. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. We'll see what uh, Perk has to say after the Mavericks game. Indeed. Thanks, Brian. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Sturdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 
4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in- This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. 